Hello and welcome back to the Elevate Music podcast, dedicated to helping musicians improve their health and well-being in partnership with help musicians. I'm Lucy Heyman and in this episode we're going to be talking about performance anxiety. With so many musicians still only able to perform in front of a virtual audience, for some this new way of working has really increased performance anxiety levels. Coming up, I'll be talking about this to specialist Diana Kenny, who tells me about the impact of performing with our audiences, and she gives some great advice about ways to manage performance anxiety generally. But first, imagine performing in a show that was being watched by 1.9 billion people. It makes me nervous just thinking about it. But that's what Nick Kershaw did in 1985 at Live Aid. I caught up with Nick to find out more about what that was like and how he managed performance anxiety throughout the rest of his career. So I wondered if you could tell me a bit about what performing is like for you. Well, nowadays it's a very different experience, I guess, to, to how it was back in the day. It's something I do that I don't have to do now. And it's something I do because I kind of I enjoy it as a challenge. I still find it quite difficult to do. It's not, it's not something I do very naturally. And it's very rewarding and it's very visceral. And I get to go on tour with me, me mates and behave badly. Whereas back in the day, it was something I wasn't comfortable with. It, was, it seemed a huge amount of pressure on me, most of which I was probably putting on myself. It was a, a trial. Every gig was a, was a trial and, and something I just had to get through and get to the other end. Whereas now it's, 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 it's a very different experience altogether. Did you have any kind of graduation in terms of the size of venues that you were performing in? Or did you feel like you were quite thrust into very high profile situations quite quickly? Yeah, when it happened, it happened quite quickly. So I was used to playing in pubs and uh, functions with my with the band I was in before, and then I, we made the record. Wouldn't it be good? It was a big hit, and we we started rehearsing for what we assumed were going to be little club shows with with the band that I, that I got. Even during the period of rehearsals, which was like about two weeks, it went from little clubs to. Hammersmith Odeon for four nights and literally that quickly it was it was madness so yeah I didn't I didn't have the opportunity to try things out or to practice really <laughs> it was straight in there yeah and were there reviewers and things at those gigs did you feel under quite a lot of pressure to deliver yeah it was already very high profile um, as soon as it happened you know because it was a lot of attention was being lavished upon me some of it positive some of it not so, yeah, I was acutely aware of the fact I was being judged all the time. And how did that affect you, like, in a physical way? Like, how could you tell that you were nervous? Was it like a, um, was it a physical thing? Were you, like, shaking or was it racing thoughts? It was very physical. Without going into too much detail, there was there was vomit involved. Uh, sometimes I got I got very nauseous and on occasions, yeah, I actually just had to go and visit the, the, the little boy's room and, and vent it. It wasn't nervousness, it was just genuine fear. I had imposter syndrome a, a little bit as well. I really didn't think, I thought I was a bit of a fraud and I was terrified of getting found out. And being on stage is a very vulnerable place to be, or it felt to me as though it was. And so how did that change over time? Did it like lose its intensity or did it stay the same? It mellowed a bit in, in, in the sort of first couple of years. But during those couple of years, there was like Live Aid and all those kind of things some pretty high profile things happening when it was really big yeah I, I was equally as terrified most of the time if we got into a quite a long tour I guess there was a little comfort period about halfway through when you're on the other side of the world and you're with your mates and you've been doing it night after night and it you, you kind of slowly the fear subsides a little bit and you just get a bit nervous and and you 
you know you can do it, you're a little bit on autopilot for that period. And there's that little sweet spot there. But no, not most of the time I was pretty terrified. So you mentioned Live Aid there. I mean, what was that like, obviously, in terms of physical size in a huge stadium, but knowing that you've got the world's media watching as well? Can you tell me about how that process was for you? Yeah, that was that was a difficult thing, the process. And surrounded by my peers and heroes as well, you know, so you really don't want to look a fool in in front of those guys. That was just a little bit more terrifying, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> than normal. And I do remember standing at the side of the stage, literally having to be pushed <laughs> onto the stage. Uh, it's like kind of walking off a cliff, uh, knowing I, I let myself in for this and it was my own fault and I was going to have to do this, actually go through with it. But I, I think I, there was a lot of nervous people at Live Aid, I have to say. And how does that progress when you get on stage? Does it die down or does it like stay the same? Because I mean, some people say that actually it kind of boosts their performance a bit. Was was that the case for you? No, I'd, I'd say not on that particular occasion because it was, a you know, as I say, it wasn't in, you weren't in the middle of a tour. It was a one off that you really wanted to get right. So I, I got most of the way through it. And I th- literally all, all, the t- all the time that's going through my head is like, just get through it and we're nearly there, we're nearly there. And, and just, you know, never at any point thinking, wow, this is amazing, which which is a real shame because it was amazing. There's a guy on my shoulder who, who I subsequently named Frank who just basically tells me something's about to go terribly wrong and he's there all the time. And I was I paid rather too much attention to him on, on Live Aid and something did go wrong and I, I, I forgot the words to one of the songs, although nobody would notice. And I have watched it back since and I can't actually see the fear in my eyes. So, yeah, I got round it. But yeah, that was so it did actually properly affect my performance. Yeah. And so say a really high profile gig like that, when would the sort of fear start? Would it be just before the performance or would it start days before? The gig was in July. So I think January it started. (laughs) A a lot of the the bands were at Heathrow Airport in January and Bob, Bob turned up and just sort of press gang people into doing this gig whatever this gig was in 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 july at the at the it was just going to be a gig in london because band-aid had just happened so there was a process of just seeing this gig turn into you know it was going to be hammersmith odeon then it was going to be wembley arena then it was going to be wembley stadium then it's going to be televised around the world and it's going to be philadelphia as well and and you just the process of seeing it getting bigger and bigger and they just sort of knot in my stomach started getting bigger and bigger as, as well the day itself I, I remember kind of my fear of helicopters was kind of overrided by the fact that I, I was terrified of the actual gig so getting in the helicopter was nothing from a Battersea heliport to, to fly to the to the stadium even now it starts with with gigs I'll, I can still look at a calendar and say well, I've got oh I've got that gig at, in in a month's time so and, and there's a little knot there but I don't know the knot feels a little bit healthier than it than it was then because I know about it and I recognise it. Have you had any support for it over the years? No, it didn't occur to me that I was uh, there was anything wrong, bizarrely. It just thought, well, this is a high-stress thing that I'm doing, so I'm stressed, you know, I'm highly stressed, so what's what's the problem? <laughs> that's, that's what everybody does, isn't it? I, I mean, there was a point at which, you know, at the point at which it actually affects your performance. At one point, sort of in the late 90s, I, I remember I, I, I went to the therapist and tried to sort of talk that through and to see what it was I could do to kind of mitigate those feelings a little bit. Mm, and did that help? 
I think it did, yeah. Maybe come well, just just the very fact that you kind of acknowledging it in, in, in front of someone else is a help. I mean, obviously, it pays to talk. That's just that just it's a no brainer, isn't it? So yes, I think it did, and it also it helped me. I mean, silly things like give the the guy on my shoulder that's telling me it's going to go wrong. Just give him giving him a name, and, and writing a song about him that helps a lot. So he's kind of a mate now. He's still there. I just recognise him as part of me, and he's not the enemy. He's just kind of someone to deal with. And so you obviously had a lot of high profile promo situations, maybe like live TV interviews or whatever. Did you find that fear kind of translated to those situations as well, or was it quite? limited to just music performance it did because i, I basically lost focus I, I wasn't great with cameras anyway just generally makes you think why did i go into this business in the first place but <laughs> but no i live television and radio was a radio not so much because you can just that's easy you just have a chat with somebody and then it's and it's done but television and then there's cameras and there's loads of people around and it my mind would wander off to how I felt and that I couldn't do this. You know, I, I'd tell myself I couldn't do this. And I'd, I'd be having that conversation in my head all the time whilst the interview was going on, uh, if it's a live interview. And then I'd like completely lose focus in halfway through a sentence, you know, and I'd, 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 I'd lose my way. Live performance, I mean, Top of the Pops was live quite often. That, that not so much for some reason. I never really got that desperately nervous on top of the pot, mainly because you weren't really performing. You were in those days, you were miming, and you could get away with it. So I didn't find those as high pressure. Do you actually enjoy performing? Bizarrely, yeah. Once I've got on stage and I've got the first couple of songs out of the way, yes, I do. And I, I especially enjoy being with the band on stage. That's our own little space. That's our own world we create up there. I'm now able to enjoy the good bits and and the bits, you know, just the the visceral excitement of it and just an audience singing your words back at you and stuff. It really doesn't get any better than that. I can properly enjoy that without having to feel I've got anything to prove or that I'm being that judged, really. It sounds like it was really, you know, almost quite traumatic at the time. There must have been something that you really, really loved about it. What motivated you? What gave you your drive to keep pushing forward? I'm probably painting a more negative a picture than I should really about it because there were obviously some incredible highs. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a successful musician and a songwriter at least and the whole pop star thing wasn't quite part of the plan. But it was incredibly exciting. Any human being will tell you having attention lavished upon you is nice. You know, it's a great feeling. And walking into a room and everybody knows who you are. You don't have to introduce yourself or, you know, what do you do? Oh, well, I I do this. You kind of people know who you are. So you've kind of got the, the upper hand. There were lots of great things about it. And you got paid very well, which is nice. And you got to enjoy all the fruits of, of, of your labour. I mean, the studio was my comfort zone, so... What a privilege to be able to create something and, and have an audience for it and people want to listen to it and to give you feedback and that something you do has meaning for someone else or resonates with someone else. That's that's a huge thing. And yeah, that was that was obviously enjoyable and incredible. That was Nick Kershaw and he recently released a new album, Oxymoron, which is available through his website at nickkershaw.net. We'd like to thank Help Musicians for their support in bringing you this episode. They're an independent charity that has been supporting musicians for nearly 100 years. Through an integrated programme of health and welfare, creative funding opportunities and business support, the charity offers a lifetime of support when it's needed most. 
For more information on Help Musicians or to find out how to access support, visit helpmusicians.org.uk. Diana Kenny is a professor of psychology at the University of Sydney and works with people experiencing performance anxiety. She has quite literally written the book on this subject and having quoted her work on many an occasion, I was really delighted to have the opportunity to speak to her. Let's hear from Diana. So for the benefit of our listeners, how would you describe performance anxiety? I think performance anxiety has been greatly simplified in lay terminology. And every time someone thinks about performance anxiety, they think about the somatic symptoms of anxiety, which are related to the fight-flight response or what is called the general activation syndrome where the body prepares itself to meet a danger or a threat. And so lots of things happen. The heart starts beating faster, you get a dry mouth, you start to tremble and shake. A lot of stress hormones are released into the bloodstream to make you hyper alert and to be able to run faster. And all of these symptoms had you know, survival value for primitive man. We don't need to explode in survival mode and run away as fast as we can or run up a tree. And so there is nowhere for all those stress hormones to be discharged and they just keep circulating around the body in these symptom clusters until the stress hormones are depleted and then the person feels exhausted. When people talk about performance anxiety, it's sometimes confused with what used to be called stage fright. And the stage fright end of performance anxiety is this extreme panic about facing danger. So the person might feel unable to continue to perform or might have a terrible memory lapse or can't remember the music or can't come in at the right time. Now, amongst professional musicians, that form of performance anxiety, which is the panic or the stage fright, where there's a break in the performance or an inability to uh, perform at all, is very rare. And so music performance anxiety is all of the other shades of some of those symptoms occurring but the musician or the performer is still able to complete the performance, but they're not happy with it. That's the general understanding of how performance anxiety is understood and described. But there are other elements to performance anxiety, which I've actually been highlighting in my work. And I I think really probably uh, for the first time in the literature have identified different forms of performance anxiety and different treatments that are required for these different forms. So performance anxiety can be what I call focal, and that is that the person is a robust personality and they are placed in a performance situation that just about everybody would feel extremely anxious about. And these include auditions or solo recitals where there's a a strong element of judgment. But they can harness that and engage in a lot of protective behaviours like being very well prepared for the performance and they can get through it. Then the next level is a level of performance anxiety which is higher, greater than that and more impairing 
And that often goes with underlying social anxiety or another anxiety disorder. And then the third type is a depressive disorder and or a panic disorder, so that they've got a much more fragile personality structure and they need a much more intensive therapy to help them deal with it. I'd love to talk about how anxiety is affecting musicians right now. So we're currently into our third lockdown here in the UK and some musicians haven't performed live for almost a year. How do you think this lack of live performance in front of an audience will affect performance anxiety levels when musicians are finally able to go back on stage? That's going to really depend on what their anxiety levels were like before the lockdown and how much they were performing and how robust they are in terms of their personality structure. Some musicians have found other opportunities to perform. So there's there's been a lot of, you know, internet performances and Zoom performances and so on. So people are still trying to find ways of keeping up their performance. Now, for some musicians, they're going to be very worried coming back into live performance if they were already quite anxious in performance before the lockdown and haven't had much opportunity to perform in any shape or form during the lockdown because it's quite difficult to keep up your motivation to practice at a high level when you haven't got performances coming up. You have to be very disciplined as a musician and, you know, keep all of your skills finely tuned. And if people have got no hope of, you know, performances, they're going to become demotivated in terms of this effortful practice that they need to do and they will lose skill over, you know, the 10 or 12 months of, you know, they haven't really had a reason to practice. So it depends on how disciplined they can be as well and whether they find opportunities to perform in some way so that it doesn't feel like such a shock to the system coming back from nothing to live performance. So you mentioned streamed performances there and I've heard anecdotally some musicians saying they actually get more nervous and they don't like the fact there isn't an audience in front of them. How does that affect a musician when they're not performing to an audience? I mean, there's a very complex and close relationship between a performer and his or her audience. And when the audience is not there you haven't got the same sense of communicating in an intimate kind of way, you know, communicating something very important and beautiful to people who are giving you their undivided attention. When you're playing into the ether, I think that relationship, even though you know that there will be people listening, you haven't got the closeness and the personal touch in that relationship And people feel a little bit disconnected, I think. This can be troubling to some performers. As we heard earlier, there are so many reasons why people experience performance anxiety in the first place. Could you tell me a little bit about the treatment of performance anxiety? How do you help people to reduce it if it's really impairing performances? It's a multi-pronged approach. And the best way of treating music performance anxiety is to start when the young person first manifests it. So, you know, even as children, there are treatments and ways of teaching and ways of preparing 
then for performances that will minimise the experience of a severe performance anxiety, which often sets the scene for the rest of their career. I've talked to so many professional musicians who had what I call a sensitising experience during usually adolescence where they just fell to pieces or did a terrible performance and they were either ridiculed by their teachers or their parents were so disappointed or their friends thought, oh, boy, you know, I thought you were, you know, a great performer and that wasn't so great. And, you know, they, they have an experience of shame and humiliation. And that can take a lot of different forms, but let's just say the performance either broke down or it wasn't what they were hoping or they got a very bad grade for it if it was being adjudicated and so on. And performance anxiety in its chronic form can actually start from experience of that kind. And so with a lot of medical and psychological conditions, prevention is the best treatment. So we help people to prepare and develop their musical life in such a way as to have lots of supportive structures underneath their performance. So it's very important, number one, that the child is not thrust into the limelight before they're emotionally mature enough to cope with that. And, you know, we live in a bit of a cult of the child prodigy and we throw them into these competitions. And even though they might do well for a period of time, eventually it overwhelms their coping resource and some of them just drop out altogether. And this isn't just musicians. I'm talking about sports people and, you know, people in other areas of public performance. So not to be in a rush to expose them to, you know, highly anxiety-provoking performance experiences before they're mature enough. Never to play repertoire that is at the edge of their technical ability. So they need to have teachers who are sensitive to their developmental level so that they can actually interpret the music appropriately and produce the music technically So, you know, if you've got a child with very small hands who's a pianist, you're not going to give the child a piece with double octaves running up and down the keyboard, you know, because the child can't reach the double octaves. It's that kind of common sense idea that you play repertoire well within your technical capacity. So let's say if some of those things weren't attended to during the young person's early training and they present as adults with severe performance anxiety, then there are a range of treatments and these are matched to the assessed severity and type of music performance anxiety. If the anxiety is somatic and there's no cognitive anxiety, then a very judicious dose of a beta blocker will often solve that problem for people who are well-prepared, well-practised and are otherwise kind of robust in their personality. Now, if there's cognitive worry, we have to assess whether that will respond to a cognitive therapy, which is one of the branches of the therapies belonging to the cognitive behaviour therapies, and sometimes that will be effective. 
But if you've got these other issues, like you've got social anxiety, panic, depression, then you need a more psychodynamic approach. You need to work with and resolve early trauma or early attachment difficulties that are being expressed in the performance anxiety. So one way of thinking about that is that people who've had very highly critical parents and teachers, for example, and have had huge expectations put on them without enough emotional support, then they will see the audience as persecutory, you know, that the audience will have the same expectations and will be very critical of them in the same way that they felt their early teachers and parents were. That kind of emotional trauma has to be worked through for people with that kind of anxiety. And if you try and just throw pills at them or just cognitive therapy, you know, like let's think about a positive cognition instead of the negative cognition, you know, exchanging one poor cognition for a good one, that doesn't work with people like that. It has to be a more integrated treatment that addresses their personality vulnerabilities as well as their performance anxiety. Now, that takes a little bit longer and musicians need to understand that, but they will get a much better result. And finally, if someone is listening to this episode and they identify with feelings of performance anxiety, what advice would you give? If you try to hide it, it's probably not a good thing to do because it means that you're dealing with it on your own. You feel concerned that you'll be found out, you know, and that will make things a whole lot worse. So, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved and that is the same for music performance anxiety. Do reach out for help. That was Professor Diana Kenny, and if you want to find out more about her work and her publications, we've put the link to her website in the show notes. Let us know your experiences of performance anxiety and if they've changed in a digital setting. Send us an email at elevatemusicpod at gmail.com or find us on social media at elevatemusicpod and let us know. Thank you to Nick and Diana for speaking to me. You've been listening to the Elevate Music podcast with me, Lucy Heyman. And if you want to find out more about how to look after your health and well-being as a musician, check out the book that Rianne Jones and I have just written, which is out on the 26th of February. It's called Sound Advice, and we've got some discount codes available. So follow us on social media at Sound Advice Book for those. And you can buy the book at soundadvicebook.com. This podcast was produced by Elevate Music and Listen Entertainment in partnership with Help Musicians, an independent charity which provides essential and enduring support to make a meaningful difference to the lives of professional musicians. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's lots of support and information about performance anxiety in our episode's show notes. In the meantime, take care and we'll be back in a couple of weeks for the next episode.